This fall, we've been doing a sermon series called Committed, Following the the Narrative Lectionary, which helps us look at Scripture not as this series of isolated texts, but for what it is, this grand, sweeping narrative about God's commitment to his creation and his creatures through one family. God's universal purposes carried forward by a particular people and God's commitment that it would be through this family, through this people, that all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Blessed to be a blessing. That's the great theme that we're tracing and we're studying. What commitment means for God and what it means for God's people. This week we come to one of the most wonderful stories in the Old Testament that captures this theme of God's people being a blessing for the nations. And it's, it's a rich text, so rich, that eating it all at once, what Mike Nelson told me, that if you eat too much rich food, you get the gout. So we don't want to get the gout, and so we're going to have to savor this, this morsel by morsel, bite by bite, because there are so many delicious flavors contained within it. It's a rich theological feast. And so just to place ourselves in the context of the narrative at this point, uh, last week we were studying Solomon. You know, this is the apex of the United Kingdom of Israel, and Solomon was famous for his wealth and his wisdom and his wives, but we're long beyond Solomon right now, more than a century and a half after his death. And, and since that time, the kingdoms have split. They have divided. You have the, the, the northern uh, kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah, and uh, they don't like each other. And both of them have serious problems with, with wicked kings, with bad leadership. And eventually, both of these kingdoms are going to, to fall. And so in the midst of this political strife, this, this theological strife too, In the north, two great prophets arise, showing what it looks like to remain committed to the Lord, even in an age of unbelief. And these are the closely named prophets Elijah and Elisha. So Elijah and Elisha, they are prophets because they speak the word of the Lord and they speak truth to power. And if you're in a life group, then uh, you might recognize the name Elisha from your last study, which was Luke chapter 4, where Jesus has his first sermon in, in Nazareth in the synagogue. And at first, the sermon is pretty well received. It's, it's very short uh, commentary on Isaiah. And Jesus says, this scripture has been fulfilled at your reading. And the people are very impressed that this local boy is making good. And, and, and so the reaction is very positive until Jesus starts explaining really what he's talking about. And at the end of his first sermon, people are ready to kill him. And it's after these words. Jesus says, and there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elijah, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman, the Syrian. So let's dive into this text. And maybe by the end of it, you'll want to throw me off of a cliff too, or at least you can throw me out of this pulpit. Probably won't hurt too bad. But so the first thing I want to draw attention to It's super surprising, and we could gloss right over it if we didn't slow down and pay attention. Because it has nothing to do with Naaman. We think of Naaman, he's kind of the main character of the story, but he's not. No, he never is. But the text starts out by telling us that, yes, Naaman is a very, very, very important person. He's a general, a great man with his master, high in favor, and a mighty man of valor. And at the end of verse 1, and he was a leper. But that's not the most surprising thing of all. The surprising thing comes when we learn really why he was great. Where the text tells us he was great because the Lord had given victory to Syria. 
See, here's what's so surprising about that. Syria was Israel's sworn enemy, the enemy of God's people. And yet scripture is telling us that the Lord gave victory to them. And so here at the beginning of our story, the first two verses, we learn a couple really important things about God and God's sovereignty, what's called God's sovereignty, which is God's rule over the world, God's care for the world. And one of them is that God is a God of world affairs. God doesn't just care about one nation, one ethnicity, one people. God's care, God's concern, God's activity encompasses every tribe, every nation, every tongue, and every people. God is the God of Israel, but God is also the God of Syria. God is not a provincial deity. He's not the property of any one nation. And so, yes, you know, God bless the United States of America, but can we also say God bless Iran, God bless North Korea, God bless Afghanistan. You get my point. God is the God of the nations, and his commitment to a particular people is part of God's care for the nations, not something that mitigates against that. So God's sovereignty, God's rule, his care encompasses the entire globe and all of the world events. God is the God of nations and of rulers and of the great events of history. But I guess we already knew that. But God is also the God of the little slave girl we meet in verse 2. God's sovereignty, his rule, his care, his concern encompasses her too. In fact, without her, this great general, this great man of ancient history would have forever remained a leper. And he would never have come to know the God of Israel. What's so wonderful about God's sovereignty is that we see both it encompasses both international politics and personal circumstances. Both world affairs and personal dilemmas are under his authority. As one commentator puts it, both the big picture and the minor details belong to him. His sway extends from parliaments and war departments to the doorknobs and phone calls and parking places of life. God cares about the whole world. And because of that, God cares about single individual lives. God is big enough for all that. But speaking of small individual lives in this passage, it's impossible to not be drawn into the pathos of the story of this little slave girl. We're told that she had been captured in a rage by the Syrian army on her village. She had been forced to serve as a slave in Naaman's house. And so here's this young girl ripped from her family, from her village, everything that she's known and loved and held dear. And just think of the tears she must have cried each night as she went to bed, wondering what had happened to her family, knowing that she would probably never seen them, see them again. And what would you have done if you were her and you found out that, that your master basically has leprosy? Wouldn't this have filled you with schadenfreude? Very understandably so. Serves him right. I hope it spreads over his entire body until no one can even look at him, let alone have anything to do with him. If I were her, I would have hated Naaman with a perfect hatred. But what does it mean for her to be committed to God in the midst of her circumstances? Is, is that even a fair question or a fair expectation? She was obviously from a faithful, committed, religious family since she knew that there was a prophet in Samaria, Elisha, 
one who could cure Naaman's condition. She understood the promises of God, that she was part of a people who had been blessed to be a blessing, that she was called to love her neighbor as herself, who in this case was her enemy. And so she tells her mistress, there is a prophet in Israel, one who can cure Naaman, who could take his spot away. That's neighbor love in action, enemy love in practice. This is being a blessing to one who persecutes you. And if we look at this entire passage and we ask, well, who is the Christ figure in this text? It's obviously this little girl. She loses her family, just like Jesus loses the father. She became a slave girl, just like Jesus, who Paul tells us was in the form uh, equal with God and took on the form of a slave She forgives instead of cursing, just like Jesus on the cross saying, Father, forgive them. They know not what they're doing. And as Paul says in Romans, while we were still sinners, while we were far away and God's enemies, Christ died for us. And throughout the Old Testament, Christ is concealed. But here in this young, nameless, captive slave girl, he is revealed. She is a sign pointing us clearly toward him. Because God is big enough for that. But back to Naaman. We're told at the end of verse 1 that he was a leper. But when we hear of the word leper, and our minds immediately go to these images of people who have horrible skin disfiguration, and and they're missing uh, uh, digits, uh, and their their nose oftentimes has been eaten away by this bacteria, what we're thinking of is what's called Hansen's disease. And that's what causes people's skin to, to become so infected and so damaged. So that with a very advanced form of this disease, you, you can look like a living corpse. And that's what the New Testament is talking about when it talks about leprosy. But the thing is, Hansen's disease isn't found in this part of the world at this time. It doesn't show up in the uh, ancient Near East until after the time of Alexander the Great. So 500 or so years after our passage. And so what the Old Testament describes as, as leprosy is not Hansen's disease. It's something more akin to discoloration of the skin or, or pariasis or something with your pigmentation. And so we need to get out of our minds this idea that, that Naaman was, you know, this great person, but he was walking around with all of these sores all over his body. His flesh was essentially rotting off. And in fact, the way that Naaman describes his condition in verse 11, in other translation, is he says, well, I was expecting Elisha to come out and wave his hand over the spot. So it's just, just a spot. But whatever that spot was, it was something that rendered Naaman this very successful, very famous, very powerful, very influential man. You know, he was the consummate insider. There was something about this spot that threatened everything that he had. And it was beyond his power to fix. And so here's what we learn from Naaman. That so often, seeking God starts with a spot. A recognition that there is something about ourselves that renders us as outsiders, that threatens everything we hold dear, and it's something that's beyond our power to fix. And though that spot might have been small on his body, it was so big that it made Naaman desperate enough to listen to this slave girl. It made him desperate enough to go into enemy territory seeking a cure. It made him desperate enough to offer up vast sums of money to whoever could restore him to wholeness. That's the thing about seeking God. It starts with a spot. 
We see something wrong in us or, or something in the world that is so wrong that, that it can destroy everything and, and, and we can't fix it, but we're so desperate that we would do almost anything. Naaman can't fix this spot with his power, with his success, with his strength, his military prowess, his celebrity, or his wealth. And so he has to turn somewhere else. He has to look outside of himself for help. That's what spots do. And it's this spot that, that drives Naaman outside of his so-called comfort zone to see healing. And it's this quest for healing that brings him into contact, admittedly indirect contact, with the prophet Elisha to receive a message of grace. And, and here's the thing about the message of grace that we see in this passage, and we see always that grace always has been and remains a scandal. And Naaman's objections to grace, what, what I'll call the gospel, are the same objections that people still have today. They have three objections when they hear the gospel. It's too humiliating, it's too simple, and it's too exclusive. First, this message of grace, it's, it's too humiliating. Naaman is a very, 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 very important person. You know, to show how important he is, he gets a diplomatic letter from his king, and he goes to the king of Israel asking for healing. Because that's how it works with important people. You go to other important people for assistance. King to king, ruler to ruler, leader to leader. That's how this stuff is supposed to work. And even if it is this prophet who's going to do the healing, Naaman assumes that he works for the king, and he's going to do whatever the king tells him to do. But that's not how it works with God's prophets. They're free agents. They work for God alone. And so Naaman doesn't get any help from the king. In fact, the message of the king of Israel is not encouraging. He says, what, 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 there's got to be some kind of ruse or the fix is in. You came in here to, to take me down. Am I God that I can kill and restore life? It's not a helpful or hopeful message from the king of Israel. But Elijah gets word of this and he says, send him here. And so Naaman, this great ruler, this great general, someone who had been triumphant over this people that he's now begging for help from, goes to the home of an obscure Israelite prophet. Elijah won't come to him. He says, come to me. Again, that's not how this is supposed to work. And when Naaman gets to Elisha's house, Elisha doesn't even bother to come out to meet him. He sends a messenger to deliver and tell him what to do. And so for Naaman, this is humiliating. He's an important person. This is not how he expects to be treated at any level. And that's the thing about the gospel. It, it humbles us because it ultimately exposes us. We're not as important as we think we are. We're not as smart, successful, or attractive, or as put together as we pretend to be. In fact, at our core, we are completely and totally dependent upon God's grace to cleanse whatever spot it is that we carry around. And how many people turn away from God because they're too proud? Even if they know they have a spot, they're too proud. Too proud to believe that superstitious stuff. Too proud to associate with, you know, those kind of people who, who just need a crutch to get through life. Too proud to pray to a God they don't know if they believe in or aren't exactly sure who they're talking to. Too, too proud to sing off-key in a room full of, of, of strangers. This whole Christianity thing, it's embarrassing. It's full of embarrassment. Cringeworthy stuff. You know, and we don't get the luxury of being cynical or apathetic or despairing or uh, 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 of othering and hating our enemies. No, no, no. Jesus expects us to care 
and to be earnest and moral and hopeful and faithful. And instead of hating our enemies, political or otherwise, Jesus tells us to love them. I mean, perish the thought. Those people don't deserve it. Not only is it too humiliating, this gospel, but it's too simple. Naaman shows up. He's expecting a show, and we got to give this to Naaman. He's ready to pay for it. He does not come with an empty wallet. No, 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 no. The amount of treasure that he brings along with him, it's almost comical. I was reading one commentary which said, you know, the purchasing power that Naaman brought would be equivalent of $1 billion in today's money. That's that's a lot of money. Uh, I don't have to tell you. And he brings with him horses and chariots. I mean, he's kind of got a mini army with him. Naaman was ready to go on. He sent me on some epic quest. Elijah, you, I want to be cured. Okay, I'm going to go find the Holy Grail or, you know, the lost city of Atlantis or the fountain of youth or El Dorado. Send me on this quest. I will go get it. I will bring whatever it is you want back and then I will be cleansed. Naaman was ready for an epic adventure of a lifetime. If we were making a movie, Elijah totally spoils everything. It's just not very exciting afterwards. It's, it's, it's way too simple. Naaman's important. He's ready. He's desperate. He's rich. He's going to do what it takes. And, and Elijah says, doesn't even tell him, but he says, tell the messenger to tell him, wash seven times in the Jordan and you'll be made clean. To which you go, really, that, that's it? You couldn't have, have, have given him more? You, you couldn't even have come out and, and waved your hand over the spot? No razzle-dazzle, no magic, no incantations, no prayers. Just go take a bath seven times. That's it. When he hears this, Naaman is filled with rage. Oh, he gets so mad because it's just too simple. That's the problem with the message of grace. It's, it's too simple for sophisticated people like Naaman and us. We want to prove our worthiness. We want to do something. We want to be something. We want to participate. We want some credit. This is God's problem across Scripture. It's too simple. New Testament, what do we have to be, do to be forgiven? Jesus says, repent. So turn from your sins, turn to God. Believe, get baptized. That's it. No super elaborate rituals. No learning or mastering of some super secret knowledge. No passing some great test or going on some great quest. This Christianity thing, it's so simple that even a child, a child, a child can understand it. I'm an educated person. I, I got a master of divinity, okay? So shouldn't the gospel be so complicated that you need someone like me with this degree to explain it to you so you can understand it? It can't just be for, you know, rubes without any education or, or training, can it? To such belongs the kingdom of God. So it's too humiliating, it's too simple, and last and maybe worst of all, God's grace is too exclusive. Elijah says, watch in the Jordan River seven times. And Naaman says, well, if I knew that all I needed to do was take a bath, couldn't I have just done that in, in the rivers of Syria? They're much nicer. If you've ever been to the Jordan River, um, I have been, not a humble brag, but I've, just, I've been there, so I've, I've seen the river. Um, and, uh, and it's... <laughs> You know, I mean, it's not much. It's kind of a muddy stream. You know, it's sort of a crick in a lot of places. And, and so if you're thinking of taking a bath and getting clean, I mean, it's better than nothing, but like, it's not like the Missis mighty Mississippi River or anything like that. Like, it's not much to look at. And so Naaman goes, well, I could have done better back home. 
And so why this river? And, and not, you know, you had lots of rivers you could choose from. Why not those? And so the scandal of the gospel, the scandal of grace is how exclusive it seems. This river, not that river. This Messiah, not that Messiah. This Savior, not that Savior. This baptism, not that baptism. And so we're scandalized by the exclusivity of the gospel because we think, well, we might as, we should be able to get God on our own terms or in our own way. Surely, you know, there's a lot of ways to get up the mountain. And so why not my road? Why yours? Who are you to tell me that there's only one right way? So that's the scandal of grace. It, it humiliates us. It's, it's too simple and it's too exclusive. And the best and worst part about it, depending on your perspective, is that the grace that God offers isn't just cheap. It's free. Naaman doesn't have to pay a penny. And so Naaman, he's filled with rage. He's about to storm away in a huff when again his servants, so notice the slave girl, Tells him, all right, there's a prophet in Israel. The servants say, don't run away, not so fast. I mean, if he told you to do something hard, you would do it. So why? it's simple. Why don't, what could it hurt? Just give it a try. Where God's wisdom comes from. Just take a bath, see what happens. And he does, and lo and behold, his skin is restored. And this word for restored, it's the same as the Hebrew word for um, repenting. And so when Naaman turns his heart towards God, the rest follows, and, and he becomes a convert to the God of Scripture. And so how do we really know that he's been converted, that he's really changed? And there are a few signs that we see. And so the first sign that we see is he has new theological beliefs. He says, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. An astounding thing for a Syrian general to say. And so there's no way you can become converted without coming to new beliefs. It's not just new beliefs, but those are part of the package. Without coming to beliefs like, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, and I believe in the Holy Spirit, etc. So he's a true convert, new beliefs. And, and, and the second sign that we see that he's a true convert is he becomes generous. He offers Elijah a present. Uh, and that's what it says in the text. Literally, literally in Hebrew, it says he wanted to bless Elisha. But Elijah can accept no blessing because the people of God are blessed to bless other nations, not to take anything from them. And so before Naaman had this very clearly transactional view, you know, he was going to buy his salvation. But now he's been healed, there's, he doesn't have to buy anything. And so this is expressing his heart of generosity, and he wants to give out of gratitude, which is a, makes this a very, very, very fitting text for Pledge Sunday. Why collect pledges? There's an expression of gratitude, joy. God has given us everything. What can we do but pledge ourselves to him? And unlike Elisha, I won't, I won't turn you away um, today. <laughs> it's a different context, folks. And the last sign that Naaman has experienced a true conversion comes in, he's expressing, even in fits and starts, he's expressing this desire. He wants to become ethically consistent in every area of his life. He comes to faith in the God of Israel, but he's like, I gotta go back to Syria. I have to go back to my day job. You know, I gotta go back and work. I'm the right-hand man of the king. And so when he goes in the temple to this God, Rimon, you know, I'm gonna be holding his arm and he's gonna bow down and I'm gonna sort of bow down too. I don't mean anything by it, but I'm gonna have to do it. Right, he's gotta go back to, you know, this, the real world, the secular world. And, but he wants to do the right thing. And so he says, can I take some dirt with me so that when I worship, I'm worshiping on, 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 on the God of Israel's turf. 
And I love this, it's so beautiful because it shows how kind of muddled Naaman's theology is, but how gracious Elisha is with him as he's figuring it out. He says, go in peace. And, and also, I think it encourages us to be as creative as we can be, to be faithful in our own contexts, figuring out what does that mean to, to follow God in the real world. And so Naaman has changed, his heart has changed, his body has changed, his life has changed. And it's changed by the simple message of grace. And so on this, this scandal of grace and the healing of the leprosy of our sin, I, I just have to share, I want to close with these words from the great English commentator on the whole Bible, Matthew Henry. And he said these words, and I, I, they're so beautiful, I'm going to close on them. He writes, The methods for the healing of the leprosy of sin are so plain that we are without excuse if we do not observe them. It is but believe and be saved. Repent and be pardoned. Wash and be clean. The believer applies for salvation, not neglecting, altering, or adding to the Savior's directions. He is thus made clean from guilt, while others who neglect them live and die in the leprosy of sin. Lord God, might we accept your simple message as the simple people we are made great by your grace. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Please pray with me.